0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: My guest on Conversations is Pico Iyer. Pico began his love of international travel at the age of nine when he started flying across the world alone to attend the fabulously named Dragon School in Oxford. Pico eventually became a journalist with Time magazine, travelling from Kathmandu to Cuba to report on world affairs. And then one autumn, Pico was flying back from a work trip home to New York, and his flight included a layover at Narita Airport in Japan. Japan was a country that Pico had no ties to and no particular interest in, but that airport layover was to change the course of his life. Hi, Pico.
2: So nice to talk to you again, Sarah, and I'm shocked to say everything you just said is absolutely correct. I can't quibble <laughs> with any of it.
1: <laughs> Do you remember, Pico, how you reacted when you learnt that your, your flight was going to be going via Japan? We're
2: Absolute indifference, really. Um, No positive or negative feelings, but I do recall that I'd had a very exciting trip in Southeast Asia, and I was really eager to be back in New York telling all my friends and colleagues about it. And, you know, a 20-hour layover is never um, a delight in any circumstance. Um, As you said, I grew up on planes going back and forth between Inglewood near Los Angeles Airport and Hounslow near Heathrow. And I knew that airport towns are not a place of cultural fascination or delight. So uh, 20 hours seemed like 20 years when I anticipated it.
1: And how how did you spend those 20 hours?
2: Well, I remember it was a late October day, which means a very bright afternoon in Japan. I landed. I took the free shuttle to an airport hotel. Um, I walked up and down, uh, acquainted myself with slightly strange new planet, um, had dinner, went to sleep, woke up had breakfast, and there was still four hours left before it was time to check in. And just as I was coming out of breakfast by chance, I saw this little sign offering a free shuttle trip into that local town of Narita. And as I say, I didn't expect Narita to be very transcendent, but I thought, well, better than another three and a half hours in the hotel. So I got into that shuttle, and uh, the rest, as you say, was history.
1: Well, what happened? What happened when you disembarked into Narita town?
2: Well, so the bus drove me for about 20 minutes through this very post war, concrete, unappealing suburban landscape. Uh, convenience stores and apartment blocks, nothing exceptional. And then it stopped and let me off, and I went across a bridge, and suddenly I was in this much more intimate ancient quarter. The lanes were very narrow. They were absolutely deserted. Most of the houses were wooden. There were shoes tidily laid out in front of the entrance to each wooden house or restaurant, uh, tatami mats inside. And through the back, through the picture windows at the back of the little tea rooms and restaurants, I could see the first flashes of orange and, and red from the autumn colors. So I wandered through this Uh, actually 300-year-old district. And I followed a riddle of lanes and found myself in front of this huge white gravel courtyard, at the end of which was a large uh, meditation hall. And in my innocence, I didn't realize that the town of Narita is a celebrated pilgrimage place, and people from central Tokyo would walk 46 miles to pay homage to this thousand-year-old temple. All I knew was this was a way to while away a morning before taking my flight. So I went into the meditation hall, which is the first that I had ever been into. And then I, I saw um, some graves by the side of it, and I followed them along to the temple garden. And as I say, this was the end of October, which in Japan means brilliant blue skies, but that first pang of coming cold and the approaching dark and the, 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 the penetration of winter. And as I looked across this garden, I saw lots of kids, probably five years old, in pink and blue hats, collecting autumn leaves. And honestly, I couldn't tell you why, but as I looked along across that scene, I thought, I know this place. And I know this place better than I know the street I grew up on in England. I know it better than the apartment where I live in New York City. And if I don't come back here, something in me is always going to feel unresolved, and I'm going to feel almost like an exile for life wherever I happen to be. And so literally, by the time I'd boarded my plane at in that afternoon, I had decided on the basis of that morning to move to Japan. And it took me three years to extricate myself from the job you were describing in your introduction at Time Magazine. But finally, I did. And I've been there 32 years. And really, it's one of those decisions in life I've never regretted. And I think even then, something in me intuited that as long as I was in New York City, a part of me would always be thinking, what would it like to be Kyoto. And as soon as I arrived in Kyoto, I wasn't thinking of anywhere. I knew I'd found the place that recognized me, I suppose.
1: Were you accustomed to making decisions like that, Pico, or was this out of character, this this sudden realization or, or, or sense that you'd found the place you were meant to be?
2: Maybe you guessed already, I am the least impulsive, spontaneous, intuitive person you could ever meet. I never, never um, act on impulse. I tend to be very deliberate for years on end before making the wrong decision. And so this this really stood out in my mind. And funnily enough, just yesterday, I, I woke up and I thought that we can never solve a problem by thinking about it. At this stage in life, I realized it's only what comes to us in a flash, unbidden, that really speaks to some... Deeper truth, uh, but generally, I, I trust my rational mind, which is almost certain to mislead me, um, so Yes, I think the fact that this hit me out of a, out of the blue against all odds and in the face of my character and my natural caution doubly made me heed it and i 'm not a kind of mystical person, so again um, i, I didn 't think this is something I'm very susceptible to. I thought this is the last thing I'm susceptible to. So something in the universe is telling me I'd better listen Mm. to this.
1: So when you did, after three years or so, make it back to Japan, what was your plan? What were you going to do?
2: Well, it's a little amusing in retrospect. Because I was working... uh, for Time Magazine in a 25th-floor office, four blocks from Times Square. I thought, well, the perfect antidote to this is to go and live in a Zen temple for a year. And all I knew of a Zen temple sitting in midtown Manhattan was, oh, I'll, I'll sit under a full moon composing haiku looking over a spotless rock gun. <laughs> as soon as I arrived in uh, a temple carrying my little suitcase like Paddington Bear. Um, I realized, of course, a Zen temple is very similar to the English boarding schools in which I served time for 10 years. It's all menial labor and scrubbing floors and barking orders and, um, and cleaning up, essentially. So my high-minded year in a Zen temple um, lasted exactly a week. <laughs> but 32 years later, I realized I'm now actually, with my wife, living very much the life I had dreamed of then because actually our home is is quite monastic and simple. We occupy a a bare, tiny, rented two-room apartment in the middle of nowhere, um, no car, no bicycle, not much media. And so the intuition that sent me not just to Japan but to the temple was a good one, but I was too young to know what to do with it then. And I had to work through, I think, a lot of romances and projections before finding my way back to where I should have been.
1: Were the, the monks at the temple the way you expected them to be?
2: No, which is a reflection on me and my foolish expectations, not on them. Um, There were two of them, extremely eccentric. Uh, I would come back after a day of sightseeing to find them crashed out um, in front of the TV watching baseball fairly raucously with empty beer bottles all around. (laughs) Um, And now, after all these years... I can see that there's a a sort of Zen truth in that about not trying to divide what is sacred from profane to a student. And in that discipline, you can get as much from a bottle of beer as from a glass of water or from um, a teacher, perhaps. But to my innocent um, 30-year-old eyes, uh, this was not what I had traveled all the world to find. And actually, when I moved out of the temple, I ended up in an even... There, more monastic room, this tiny room in a foreigner 's guest house where i didn 't have my own toilet or my own telephone or really even my my own bed, and I was still along the magical eastern hills of Kyoto, but at least without uh, drunken monks around me every night
1: <laughs> I think a few weeks only uh, three or so weeks after you had arrived and decided that the Zen temple wasn 't for you, you went along to another temple ceremony. Tell me about that About that experience and, and who you were seated next to.
2: Yes. I think what confirmed me um, in the sense that this wasn't a bad intuition was my first week in Kyoto. I went to a little coffee shop and I found myself sitting across the table from a, a foreigner and he asked me where I'd come from and I said, well, I was just in Santa Barbara, California and he looked at me and he said, oh, I wonder if you know somebody called Mrs. Aya. And I said, well, <laughs> yes, actually, she's my mother. And it turned out that this this, uh, painter who had already studied Zen for 12 years in Japan had been a student of my mother's, and he was so kind and so pleased to meet me that he took me under his wing and really showed me the world um, that I had only mistily dreamed of in New York City. And so my third week in Japan, he had no doubt noticed I'd already flunked out of the temple, as it were, but I was still interested in learning about that tradition, so he very... ...generously invited me to a ceremony in which a Zen master was reaching some even higher level of elevation. And we were placed in the foreigner's quarter next to an American woman who was studying Zen and the American woman's friend... Uh, And the friend was, uh, I I would say in some ways, a a typical Kyoto housewife. She was living in the suburbs with two kids, and I found myself next to her. And we fell into conversation, and uh, unusually for Japan, she was not shy, and she was very enthusiastic about speaking um, only half comprehensible English. (laughs) And she asked me, as one does in Japan, how old are you? She asked me, as is characteristic of her, who's your favorite um, rock and roll singer?
1: And, um, Who did you answer, Pico?
2: I answered Bruce Springsteen. The right answer would have been Sting for her, because he's a woman. But Bruce Springsteen was close enough. Bruce
1: would have been the right answer for me, I think. I think you would have got some credit with Bruce.
2: Oh, good. Well, I think the, the way I finally won um, the hand of my now wife is I accompanied her gallantly and selflessly to so many Sting concerts. Year after year after year, I could probably deliver all of Sting's songs to you right now. So uh, I, I declined to tell her that Sting was my least favorite musical artist on the planet. Um, but I was coming from California, too, which obviously was uh, appealing to her. Uh, so yes, that part too. So you just uh, started started
1: chatting to to a, a married woman with young children, at, at different parts of the world. What happened next? How did you you see each other again after that meeting at the temple?
2: So she invited me and my friend, and I think maybe a couple of other foreigners who are in the vicinity, to her daughter's uh, five year old birthday party, which was five days later, and. In retrospect, I think it's one of those fairy tales almost in which the princess extends a riddle and you only win her hand by coming up with the right answer beyond the Bruce Springsteen answer. So uh, maybe four of us foreigners were invited to the birthday party, but I was the only one who showed up because I thought I've just arrived in Japan to encounter a world I could never have guessed about in New York City. So even a five-year-old birthday party is going to be interesting. So I showed up and as it trans. But to my surprise, um, there were no other guests, adults or kids there. So um, I really got to know very quickly her two children, aged five and seven, and Hiroko. And... In the course of the year in which I'd expected to steep myself in, in the mysteries of Zen, um, really it became a year about seeing this young woman transform her life dramatically, overnight as quickly as Japan transformed its life after World War II. So when I met Hiroko, she'd never been on a plane. She'd barely been outside her hometown of Kyoto. By the end of the year, she'd walked out of her marriage with her two children, and she was a tour guide leaving equally bewildered Japanese around the world. Um, so it's extraordinary, the, the, the courage and the, um, the fearlessness with which she seized a new destiny.
1: What kind of person is she? What was it about her that, <laughs> that appealed to you? What's she like?
2: The first word that comes to mind is electric, (laughs) brightly colored. Um, She's the same age as I, so therefore in her early 60s, and she's not many feet away from me as I speak. But if you were to see her, you would see somebody in a black leather jacket with a heavy metal T-shirt, who until very recently was selling punk clothes, and yet who beneath that surface is as deeply traditional traditional and Japanese as anyone you could meet. And so to this day, she wakes up in our little apartment before dawn every morning. She heats up some water for her father's favorite cup of tea, and she puts out tea on the household altar for her father, who died seven years ago. And in some ways, I think this almost speaks for my sense of Japan, which I think of as almost an old man in a Planet Hollywood T-shirt, as, as everybody who's been to Japan knows, and even those who haven't. Very cool, very global, absolutely up to the minute, and no less old and no less Japanese for that. I think if, if you ask my wife the question you just asked me, her much Pithier answer might be that she's the Indian in the household and I'm the Japanese. So as I said, I'm the extremely unintuitive, unimpulsive one who's always you know tapping his fingers impatiently. Why isn't the ten thirteen bus here at ten twelve? And she's gregarious and warm and and brightly coloured and and loves um, uh, going to India.
1: How unusual was your relationship back in the late nineteen eighties when you got together?
2: Very unusual, I'd say. Unheard of in the sense that divorce was almost unknown. Though so now, 32 years on, it's extremely common, and most of my wife's younger friends sadly have already been through a divorce. But I think um, my wife is graced with a gift that again I envy, which is imperviousness. That uh, for a woman then to take a divorce was always to be in the wrong. Nearly always the custody of the children was awarded to the men because it was assumed that a woman had failed in her duties um, to claim her own destiny and and to try to pursue her own path. And to marry a foreigner, doubly bad. And worst of all, to marry a foreigner um, who looks like me, dark-skinned and whose ancestry belongs to a poorer Asian nation. In fact, I found out not so long ago that my nickname in the neighborhood where we live is Isoro, which means parasite, <laughs> since I'm the only male who doesn't get up every morning and put on a three-piece suit and stand at the bus stop and go to work. Even worse, I send my wife off to work because as a writer, I'm slouching around in my pajamas at noon.
1: You laugh, you laugh saying that, Pico, but does that sting, That the way that you're viewed by parts of Japanese society and I guess Hiroko's family to an extent.
2: It doesn't it doesn't sting at all because I mean most writers are parasites in some ways <laughs> uh, on the face of it and for a very conventional society where most men earn their living in a very traditional conventional way I'm absolutely Uh, an odd man out. And um, it's true that when first I was introduced to my future mother-in-law and father-in-law, my future father-in-law all but threw his arms around me and was so delighted to meet a foreigner because the only time he'd been outside Japan was for five years in the Manchurian campaign as a soldier and then two years in a prisoner of war camp in Siberia, but he was fascinated by the outside world. As soon as my future mother-in-law saw me, she broke into tears. And for the next three hours, she sobbed, more or less broadcasting to the room. This is what I always feared. When my daughter was six years old, she was already interested in elephants in the Taj Mahal. And now all my worst fears have, have, have come, come to being and come to life. But I, no, I none of that stings because um, my mother-in-law had never been outside Japan. I think all of us, though, we pretend not to, especially in uh, enlightened liberal circles, you know, have misconceptions about the rest of the world. Um, and I once read a wonderful sentence by the great American writer Donald Ritchie, uh, who lived in Japan for 66 years, and who said the Japanese are maybe xenophobic, but they're innocently direct in their xenophobia in a way that Australia or England or United States might not be. Um, but certainly, uh, I took no offense. And quickly, once I married their daughter, and once they saw I was sending their grandchildren to school and apparently a you know, fairly steady partner, um, they couldn't have been kinder to me. And it used to be, in the 1990s, every time I flew back to Japan, maybe four times a year, they would literally strip search me at customs because I looked so much like what they didn't want to see coming into their country. Uh, They assumed either I was a terrorist or I was Saddam Hussein's uh, cousin, or I was an illegal Iranian because they had a problem there whereby a lot of people from uh, Iran were immigrating illegally to Japan through a visa loophole. So they'd be very tough about admitting me into the country. And as soon as I was in the country, everyone I met couldn't have been more gracious and polite and, um, and hospitable, really. So, um, no, I mean, I've always felt that one's home and one's sense of belonging are not necessarily the same thing. And so Japan feels unquestionably my home, much more than the England where I grew up or the India where my blood uh, belongs or the United States where I've been an official resident for more than 50 years. But at the same time, I know I will never belong to Japan and and nor do I expect to. And I actually live on a tourist visa in Japan uh, for 32 years now, although I'm eligible for a spousal visa partly to keep myself honest and to remind myself However long I live here, I could never be Japanese. I don't think I would want to be Japanese because of all the social pressures to which they're subject. And also, in a way, to reassure my neighbors, don't worry, I'm not going to impose on you, and I'm, trying, I'm going to try not to disrupt the beautiful homogeneous harmony you've constructed over 1,400 years. I'm a visitor, and I will be flying back within 90 days to California.
1: Tell me more about your family, Pico, about your mum and dad. What kind of life had they been leading before you came along?
2: Well, they both grew up in very British India, uh, born in uh, what was then Bombay in 1930 and 1931, and probably in a system that would not be radically different, maybe from that of Australia in those times, because Britain did a good job of of, of spreading its, its system around the world. And so for them growing up in Bombay, England almost seemed a suburb of India, and when they had finished their university studies in Bombay, both of them ended up going to England. And I don't think that was much of a shift for them because they'd been educated mostly by British nuns and, and monks. Uh, they could recite the Bible backwards and forwards. Uh, they'd been weaned on Shakespeare and Tennyson and, and Shelley, in fact, much more than their own tradition. And uh, so I think going to England, although it involved a three-week boat trip, uh through the Suez Canal, nonetheless felt like going down the road, going to India in a different key, as it were. Mm -hmm. And so um, they both studied at Oxford, and then they both taught uh, philosophy, essentially, at Oxford, and that's how I came to be born in Oxford and lived there till the age of seven, which is when my father moved to here in California to join a think tank
1: here. You kind of say that just as a a matter of course, that because of this cultural connection, off they went to study at Oxford. That's no easy feat for anyone. How, for example, was it that your father managed to go and get a degree there?
2: Uh, You're absolutely right. Uh, My mother came from quite a cosmopolitan family, many of whose members had studied abroad. So for her, it was a natural transition. But exactly as you suggest. For my father, it wasn't because he grew up in really a single room with six siblings in the suburbs, no advantages whatsoever. And to this day, I don't know how um, he developed such a powerful mind, but he was teaching philosophy in Bombay at the age of 18. And then when he was 19, uh, he won the Rhodes Scholarship to go to Oxford. And in those days, there were 600 million uh, People in India and only one Rhodes scholarship, and so an extraordinarily competitive field. And um, one in six hundred and sixty
1: million chance—that's extraordinary.
2: Extraordinary, especially because then as now. Indians are incredibly quick-minded and intelligent and and well-educated. So there was some fearsome competition, I think. And he was magicked out of this little um, apartment where I believe he'd never really used a knife and fork. And there he was in the wintry cloisters of Magdalen College, um, Oxford. And somehow... He clearly was a very precocious um, young man. He managed to navigate that transition and became quite a star at Oxford, the the president of the debating society, the Oxford Union, which is usually a kind of cradle for future prime ministers in Britain and elsewhere. Um, He did extremely well in his exams, and then he started teaching there. So, curiously, even at my advanced age, I would have to say my father still a mystery to me because, as I said, he has six brothers and sisters and they're all one, wonderfully uh, kind and extremely accomplished and successful, but none of them have that academic band. It's almost as if he came from nowhere, uh, gifted with um, a silver tongue and a compendious interest in every academic discipline.
1: I'm struck, Pico, by the way you're describing being different and embracing that visual difference that you have in Japan. Is that something that you... Was steeped in as a child, as I guess your parents were. There can't be many people who look like you and your family in Oxford in the 50s and 60s.
2: Exactly. In fact, it's remarkable, almost unimaginable now to anybody, that I would say the, the the number of Indians I saw around me was zero. So um, in 1968, large numbers of Indians started to come into England from East Africa and elsewhere. Uh, and more and more people would be coming from Pakistan and Bangladesh, people who looked very much like me. But all the time I was growing up, I never saw another dark-skinned kid in any of my classrooms. And of course, I was the only person in those classrooms who couldn't tell. I looked different. So as far as I was concerned, I was going to St. Philip's and St. James Primary School and playing Joseph in the Christmas pageant and doing the same thing, singing you know, Jerusalem in chapel and doing everything exactly the same as all my English friends. And And they would have noticed I looked different, but I didn't. It's funny, I not so long ago, I met a friend of mine who'd been my classmate when I was nine years old. And he, in his mid-50s, confessed to me that a very sophisticated uh, young boy from an international family growing up in London. He had never seen a dark skin until he stepped into the classroom at the age of nine and saw me. And what's wonderful about that, and everyone in Australia knows because you're, you've played through the same story, is that now when that same friend's four daughters bring their friends home from college, none of them even stops to say so-and-so's from Pakistan or from Jamaica or Nigeria. All their friends, as far as they're concerned, are Londoners. And a place like England, I think, has made dramatic strides in in the course of my lifetime to the point where London, which is the dullest, greyest, deadest town When I was growing up is now, as you know, one of the youngest, busiest, most international and alive, partly because the average person you meet in London now is what used to be called a foreigner, somebody Mm. born in another country. So London very quickly has moved from being extremely provincial to amazingly international. But I was growing up in the provincial days.
1: This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski on ABC Radio. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Pico, when you were nine, your parents got jobs at a university in California. What did that mean for your education?
2: Well, in those days, and maybe still, uh, the educational systems of England and California couldn't have been more different. And I went to a place like the Dragon School, pure... Harry Potter. But because it was a day school and a boarding school in Oxford, it was catering to many diplomats' kids and also many professors' kids. So it was quite high-powered. And by the age, I think, of six, we were already learning Latin and Greek and French. I came to California, and the school really didn't know what to do with me because I was advanced in certain ways like that, retarded in others. And they kept on throwing me from one grade To the next. And I thought, well, the main thing I'm going to learn here is either surfing or horse riding, but I'm going to quickly unlearn some of the good foundations I had received uh, back in England. So at the age of nine, I actually persuaded my parents that I should return to school in England, especially because the school I had been attending, as I say, was a day school and a boarding school. So I could return to the same school in the same premises with the same classmates. um, Because I felt that um, I was was going backwards rather quickly academically in California and better the devil I knew than the devil I didn't know. I think the thing that helped me in those days was that such was the exchange rate. It was actually cheaper for me to fly to boarding school in England and fly back three times a year to visit my parents on holiday than to go to the private school 10 minutes by bus down the road from us here in, in California.
1: What was it like flying? alone at, at age nine. What do you remember about being on the aeroplane? How were you treated?
2: Wonderfully, like a king. It was, <laughs> it was like <laughs> a rare interlude in which I was sort of upgraded to the heavens because I, I'm sure they still use the phrase these days, but I was what was called an unaccompanied minor. So my, I didn't realize at the time that boarding schools that may be much harder on the parents who are feeling anxious and guilty um, than on the child who quickly adapts. So my parents would shakingly hand me over to some uniformed cabin attendant and she would lead me onto the plane and then more or less say, this is your playground. Whatever you want, we will bring you. You can have <laughs> Coca-Cola, which of course was strictly forbidden as soon as I arrived at school. You can um watch every movie you want on on this uh, this little screen. We'll give you some headphones. Uh Really, uh, between the two regimes of my parents' home and fairly strict boarding school, this was a moment of freedom that I was determined um, not to squander.
1: (laughs) As as you say, Dragon School, Oxford, it does sound like something out of Harry Potter. What did it look like? What were the buildings and the grounds like?
2: Um, so that school, um, maybe built in the 19th century, all the teachers were known by their nicknames, um, you know, Squirrel and Rabbit and Inky. Not to
1: their face, surely, just yes, um, yes. to their in face. in fact, you would
2: say to the teacher called Gov, Inky sent sent me to, be, to see you. And I think they were trying to reassure lots of these very small boys a very long way from home. After that, I went to a boarding school that was 550 years old uh, where we would literally sing prayers in Latin in the oldest classroom in the world, dating from 1441. This is, is uh, at Eton, Pico. Toys. Yes. So you know, one of the notorious ancient English boarding <laughs> schools where we had to wear tails and a black gown. And so there we were really moving speedily backwards through history.
1: English boarding schools are... Uh, infamous for physical punishment, and you were there at Dragon and then, as you say, at Eton, were they violent places?
2: I'd say they were very tough places, competitive places, violent in a sort of military way. I think of them, especially Eton, as half monastery and half military academy. So lots of playing sports in the mud and the drizzle. We had to run a steeplechase every year as if we were horses. We had to play games. Sorry, what do, you, what do you mean you had to school. run
1: a steeplechase as if you were um, horses? So
2: there's a thing called a steeplechase and every boy had to run, I can't remember how how long, but it seemed endless. But might have been 45 minutes fording streams and slashing through the mud and, you know, for navigating branches and doing all kinds of things just to show his his fitness for the next war, I suppose. And we played these games. There was a game called the war game where no goal has been scored since 1909. And the only discernible purpose is to smash every kid on the opposing team's head into the wall. Uh, There was another game called the field game combining the most malevolent aspects of soccer and rugby. And these are all
1: sanctioned. These are all approved by the powers that be.
2: Yes, very extremely official. In fact, compulsory games. Uh, Many things are compulsory there. But truly, when I look back, especially on my high school... I would say it's the single best and most formative influence in my life. First, because the assumption in those schools is that life is tough and that they have to train you, um, whether you're going into a workplace or a battlefield or even a marriage, there's, there's going to be a lot of challenge and tension and competition, and you have to be prepared for that. And for me, I think this is particularly fortunate because my parents were very indulgent. And I think if I hadn't gone to these schools, I'd have been even more of a spoiled brat than I am. So I was glad that they toughened me up. The other good thing about my high school was that every boy was given his own room. So it wasn't like the the movie vision of 16 beds all in a row, though we did have that at the Dragon School. And every boy was given his own room really to encourage him to follow eccentric Intellectual pursuits. So, if he wanted to read Dostoevsky, he wouldn't be ashamed. If he wanted secretly to learn Chinese in his free time, he could do so. And one of the ways in which he trained me to be a writer in subsequent life was that we had a lot of homework, but we would be told, for example, you have to produce three essays by Friday morning. And what you do between now and Friday morning is almost entirely up to you. But The presentation of those essays on Friday morning is non-negotiable. So it really taught one to be very self-disciplined. And essentially, that's what I've done for a living ever since. An editor will tell me, you have to get this article in by Sunday morning, and it will always be in because that discipline was laid in me at an early age. And the final blessing that it took me a little while to realize was that going to boarding school, at least in my case, made my relations with my parents much more benign and happy than they might have been otherwise, because for me, my parents were liberators. I was so delighted to see them, and even in the throes of adolescence when I was 15 years old, when I would get off the plane, there were my parents, and now I could see movies and drink Coca-Cola and do anything I wanted, and I couldn't have been happier to see them, and for their part, they didn't have to go through the ordeal of uh, being with a 15-year-old adolescent boy who's working through all the torments of adolescence, and they could out source that to professional sadists who had one (laughs) gift in life, which is knowing what to do with adolescent boys. Um, And when I received discipline from a teacher, it was nothing personal. I I couldn't resent it. Whereas if I'd received the same discipline um, from my parents, who knows what kind of wounds and grudges I might have borne through life. So Mm -hmm. I feel the school gave me a good education and it it allowed my um, relations with my parents always to be wonderfully peaceable.
1: Pico, tell me how it was through your father that you came to meet the Dalai Lama when you were a teenager.
2: Even at a very young age, actually when I was two years old, my parents would share the evening news with me and we had a little wireless, as it was in those days, up on a shelf, and my father would turn it on at seven o'clock and out would crackle the day's news and in 1959. For 14 days, the day's news was about a 24-year-old boy king of Tibet who is fleeing over the highest mountains on earth to try to get to freedom. Um, Exile in India. And so, of course, I couldn't understand most of that as a little boy. But even at two or two and a half, I could respond to the fairy tale elements. And my parents would explain this is a Tibetan Buddhist who's the ruler of Tibet from the age of four and is believed to be an incarnation of a god. And he's trying to escape these planes so that he can make a new life for himself. And so I was fascinated. And my father, because he was a philosopher and knew a lot about various religions, as soon as the Dalai Lama came into exile in 1959, sailed back from Oxford uh, to India and requested an audience with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama, having arrived in exile, was, of course, very eager to meet as many people as possible. And as a very open-minded soul, he wanted to learn from as many sources as he could. So he invited my father up to where he was living, and they had a long conversation. At the end of the conversation, my father said, well, Your Holiness, I actually have this three-year-old boy back in Oxford, and he took an unusually keen interest in the story of um, Your Holiness's flight across the Himalayas. And then and there, the Dalai Lama found a photograph of himself when he was four years old, and he sent it to me, age three, through (laughs) my father. And I put it in Little Fame and I had it on my desk. And I can still remember as a little boy, every now and then, if I would feel a little sorry for myself, I'm nine years old and I'm 6,000 miles away from my parents. I only had to look at this picture of a four-year-old who was already ruling six million people and in charge of 14 million Tibetan Buddhists. And I couldn't feel sorry for myself uh, much longer.
1: Tell me, though, about actually meeting the man in that photograph when you were a teenager. What did you encounter?
2: Yes. So when I was 17, because I belonged to that increasingly populous group of Indians who've never been to India, essentially, my parents decided to spend a whole summer introducing me to the uncles and aunts and cousins and grandparents that I'd never really known before. And as part of that, my father um, invited me to come with him up into the uh, foothills of the Himalayas to meet the Dalai Lama. We took the overnight train from Delhi, and then we had to get into a car for a four-hour taxi ride around the winding switchbacks that lead to His Holiness's house in Dharamsala. And it was an August day, which means extremely intense monsoons. Monsoons in Dharamsala are some of the heaviest in all India, so impenetrable fog, which really gave it this otherworldly somewhat mystical, fabulous quality, and we wound around the turns through the mist and finally arrived at this very beautiful house, the Dalai Lama's residence, and we went in, and my father and the Dalai Lama started talking about philosophy, and of course, I couldn't follow most of it, but as I looked out over the Dalai Lama's picture windows, they oversee a beautiful valley, the Kangra Valley, and I could see nothing but fog clouds. And it really seemed to me as if these two philosophers were sitting on top of the clouds talking about changelessness and impermanence and attachment and compassion and all these eternal issues, none of which I could follow, but it did have a magical quality. And I think some seed was planted in that meeting. Because five years after that, the Dalai Lama started for the very first time coming to the United States. And I would always seek him out when he did come and attend his lectures and, and get to see him, which was very easy in 1980 and 1981, when most people didn't even really know who or what the Dalai Lama was. And as soon as Tibet opened up to the larger world in 1985, I went there and almost anybody I think who goes to Tibet will have her life changed The intensity of the devotion of the people to their tradition and to their leader, the more it's embattled, um, is really Mm -hmm. stirring.
1: You have spent a lot of time with the Dalai Lama. You accompany him when he's travelled about Japan. What's it like to spend time with him?
2: It's wonderful, though, I get exhausted just watching him go through his day, and he's 22 <laughs> years older than I am. But um, it's remarkable. So every morning, my wife and I will meet him in his hotel room at 8.30, and we will go through his the eight hours of his official day with him. And so we'll usually go down to the hotel lobby in an elevator with him, and he'll walk out into the lobby, and there'll be maybe 80 or 100 people, and the word has gotten around that the Dalai Lama is in town. So masses of people um, with requests, wanting a selfie, asking him for a blessing, extending a traditional white scarf to him. And every little six year old child who comes up to him, he brings all his attention to and listens to as if he were listening to the Buddha. And the next day in a large stadium in Tokyo, he'll be addressing 20,000 people and he'll talk about what he learned from that six year old kid. And I think people in the audience may think, well, this is part of his stump speech. This is what he always says. But we, traveling with him, realize that he's genuinely remembering somebody he happened to meet in a hotel lobby 36 hours before mm. and is is uh, reflecting on what he might have learned from that soul. So we do all kinds of things. Like we've gone shopping for eyeglasses with him in a huge shopping mall. Uh, when we're driving across Japan... In a convoy of black cars, he will often stop at a Seven-Eleven or a convenience store and buy everyone little cans of hot tea, which you can get in Japan, and then literally stand at the door of the convenience store, shaking the hand of every surprised, <laughs> bewildered uh, truck driver who comes in. But it's it's hard to overstate how wide awake he is, how absolutely open, and how very good he is at making people forget that he's the Dalai Lama, because of course most people who approach him are quite intimidated, and then he you, or he'll pull your ponytail if you are a man, or he'll he'll make some joke. Oh, you look like Vladimir Putin, don't you? And instantly, all semblance of formality dissolves. I've heard one, thing, just one person constantly as Mr. Putin as, as a mischievous joke. Uh, And of course, he's had that gift since he was four, but it's one of the things that he's gained, I think, in exile, one of the many things, because Tibetans still rightly see him as an incarnation of a god, so they're very, very reverent. But with foreigners, he realizes that he can relax, and he can really enjoy the kind of informal conversation that might have been quite difficult for him if he was still in the Potala Palace in Lhasa.
1: Pico, this photo of himself as a four-year-old on the throne that the Dalai Lama sent to you when you were just a little boy and which you kept in this frame on your desk all through those years at boarding school, at the Dragon School and then at Eton. What happened to it?
2: It stayed on my desk uh, until I was in my early 30s. And then a forest fire struck up in the hills of California, just next to where I am talking to you now, and reduced every last thing in our house to Ash, including that photo. And in some ways, it it reminded me of what that photo stands for, the Dalai Lama's message, which is everything is impermanent. You can't hold to any physical object. But if you hold to the values or the symbols that that photo represents, that will be with you as long as you are alive. But the physical world can go just like that. And I'm sorry to even mention this in the context of Australia, because so many of the people in your country know about forest fires much too well could
1: could you appreciate that immediately pico because you saw your your family house burn down with everything of yours in it and and your parents all of those photos and books and and memories how long until you could take that that lesson of impermanence
2: i think the lesson in terms of the photograph took a while and other lessons took a while but interestingly enough again i think going to Japan and seeking out that monastery and spending, at that time, three years reading Japanese poems had been a very good foundation for me because I remember at that time, the night of the fire, um, I still was writing columns for Time magazine. So I was caught in the middle of the fire for three hours and I saw it systematically pick through our living room and wipe out everything in my bedroom, all the handwritten notes I'd accumulated through my life, just the cinders. And finally, after three hours, I was able to escape. And the very first thing I did was to go to a friend's house and use her computer and send an article to Time Magazine, because at that time, this was the worst fire in Californian history, and of course, I'd had a front seat view on it. And in that article, so the article I wrote the evening that I lost my home, I ended the piece with a poem that I'd picked up in Japan from the 17th century that read, my house burnt down, now I can see more clearly the rising moon. In other words, you can lose everything you own in the world, and maybe that will help you clarify your priorities. And so something in me intuited that the very night of the fire, to end the piece with that. What Then I would say maybe a few months afterwards, once I'd adjusted to having to start my life, I knew, and really being reduced to nothing, I noticed when the insurance company came along and offered to replace most of our possessions, I didn't need 90% of the books and clothes and furniture I'd accumulated. I could live much more lightly on the earth. And although I had lost all my notes in those pre-computer days, I thought, well, now I'm going to have to try fiction, which I'm sure I would always have been much too shy or scared to try Mm -hmm. otherwise. So I noticed... In the aftermath of that fire, and maybe this is the case with every fire or earthquake or tsunami, that many, many of my neighbors were devastated for life and will never recover. And others, having been through exactly the same thing, thought, well, maybe there's a liberation here, or maybe this can prompt me to reorient my priorities or refresh my habits a little. And of course, I've been thinking a lot about that in this virus moment, when Almost the whole world is emerging from a similar catastrophe and wondering what it might have learned from it or whether there are positives amidst all the terrible losses.
1: Pico, one of the places that you've called home for more than 30 years now is Nara in Japan, the old capital of Japan. One place you spend a lot of time in in Nara is at the ping pong studio. Tell me about, <laughs> <laughs> tell me about where you play ping pong and what's it like there?
2: Yes, going every day to play ping pong with my neighbors who are mostly in their 70s and 80s. Um, I, when I joined in my fifties, was the youngest by about 20 years. At five foot seven, I was almost the tallest. And when my wife would look in on the proceedings, she would realize with horror that her aging, balding husband was a kind of Justin Bieber. Figure <laughs> because, uh, I'm, I'm the only foreigner in the group and I'm the youngest by a long way. So I think I'm almost a mascot for my extremely kind friends. Um And w- one of the things that's delightful about this uh, is that many of the people I play with um, are Japanese men who are the ones who built the Japanese economy in the so-called Japanese miracle, you know, working hard for corporations for 40 years after the end of the war. And now, finally, when they're retired, they're allowed to be human again. And they're like little boys. They jump up and down when they score a point. They're really delighted to spend time with their grandchildren because, while working very hard, they spend very little time with their children. One of the other things that delighted me when I first started playing ping pong, which was 16 years ago, was to notice we only play doubles ever. We choose our partners by lot, and we change partners after every five minutes. So if you do happen to lose, you'll get a different partner six minutes later and very likely win. Of course, everybody keeps track of the score while the game is being played, but nobody keeps track of who's winning overall. And so it's a wonderful induction into the Japanese way of thinking about the community and the harmony of the whole. And so none of my Japanese friends wants to be the champion or cares whether he's won or lost individually the whole notion is to make as many people as possible come out at the end of the day happy and feeling like winners. And of course, that's so different from when I play ping pong with my English arch rival here in California, where you know, we're playing cutthroat games. And if I happen to win, I can't sleep all night because I'm terrified that he's going to exact revenge. And if I happen to lose, I keep thinking if only I'd hit that backhand forehand at 16-15 in the fourth game, I wouldn't have lost. And you know, one gets into these very neurotic spirals when you're really, really trying to and,
1: and I can't help but contrast it to what it must have been like playing games at Eton and Dragon, where there was a very different attitude to competition, I'm imagining.
2: That's a very, very good comparison. I'd, I'd never made it before myself, but you're, you're absolutely right. So at, at Eton, all 250 boys had to assemble in a theatre at the end of every term. And we would be told exactly where we stood in the class. So I am 126th, my Mm -hmm. friend is 138th, some other poor soul is 239th, some even poorer soul is 248th. So you couldn't have, I think military academies sometimes observe that practice, but outside military academies, it's rare to be in so ferociously competitive an environment. Um, So you're absolutely right. And I think more generally, I felt that in England and in the US, I'd been taught to kind of, to speak, to push myself forward, to, to try to decorate a resume and in Japan I thought what I could really learn is how to listen, how to be invisible and how to try to think about um, the happiness of the whole rather than defining the world only in terms of my myself and it's wonderful because every day when I came home after ping pong and my wife asked me how was it, I don't say I won or I lost, I said wonderful, we all had a terrific time and I probably won a few and lost a few
1: your most recent book is called Autumn Light. What is it that you love about that season in Japan?
2: Exactly what I saw that first day in Narita, which is the blend of brilliance and realism, the blend of wistfulness and buoyancy. There's something about it that really pierces me in Japan. The skies are absolutely cloudless. There's a real sharpness to the air even as the days are getting shorter, the darkness is coming earlier and the trees are getting bearer. And in some ways, the Japanese public face is very different from the Japanese private face. And I've always thought that cherry blossoms, which are probably more famous, are the face that Japan likes to present to the world. They're frothy and pretty and a little bit erotic. But I think what's really at the heart of the Japanese character is this this blending of sadness and and. Confidence or optimism. And what strikes me after many years of being in Japan is that on a bright November morning, nearly all my neighbors will flock out into the temple gardens and the parks. And people go to observe the autumn leaves uh, so that they can be, again, brought together into a kind of congregation and so they can be reminded of forces that are much larger than we are is a good preparation for forest fires and tsunamis and earthquakes, and also so they can get flashes of sunlight, even in in the middle of the coming dark. So I've learned really to cherish, especially November in in Japan, because it's such an optimistic season, Mm. even though it's about things falling away. Because I think in Japan, the fact that everything is impermanent isn't a recipe for grief, so much as awakening to the fact you can't take anything for granted. And you have to find your joy and your beauty and your inspiration right now. And I find a huge amount of enjoyment in Japan, even though it's within this framework that has a kind of black edge around it, saying nothing lasts for long. Mm -hmm. And because nothing lasts, everything matters.
1: Pico, it's just delightful to talk to you. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations.
2: Well, I'm really honoured to be invited to, to share this time with you, Sarah, and thank you very much uh, for thinking of me.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.
0: All is not as it seems in the small country town of McElroy. Hello? Tang Wei. Who's calling? Follow the data. Uh, What did you say? Follow the data. Who is this? Hello? Hello? Strange things are happening, like the school principal's missing. Everyone says she's on long service leave, but they're obviously lying. And someone or something is keeping tabs on everyone in McElroy and crashing the entire town's internet every night to do it. That's like government levels of data. We should report this. To the cops? No, NASA. Yeah, the cops. The only people onto it are Tang and her best mate Mitch, students at the local high school. Why are there eight security cameras? Someone's watching. And someone... Doesn't want them to find out what's really going on. Don't look back, just keep pedaling. Did it see us? Uh, I don't think so. Join Tang and Mitch on a weird and wild adventure. Can you hear that? This is crazy. This is actually crazy. McElroy. It's a town with secrets. What's the matter? What is it? There's someone over there. What? Mitch, run! McElroy Uncovered, a new podcast for kids from the ABC. Listen for free on the ABC Listen app or on other podcast apps like Apple and Google.